Father in heaven, it is truly a privilege to once again hear your words of truth, even as they are about to be spoken. And Lord, I'm praying and thanking you so much for taking us safely through another week. Thank you so much for your tender watch care and your loving mercy. Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we can draw a little closer to heaven and that our minds can be fixed to another time. Father, we're praying in the name of Jesus. Please forgive us of our sins. Please cleanse us, Lord, from all unrighteousness. And help us to behold Jesus tonight. And by beholding, help us all to become changed into the same image. And Lord, I pray that as you will bless so many, please don't pass me by. I ask for a fresh revelation of your word, even as I give it to others. And may we all leave here, as stated earlier, higher upon Jacob's ladder. Is our prayer that we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like to invite you to turn your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew, the 16th chapter. We're going to the book of Matthew, the 16th chapter. And I want you to see what the Bible says as we consider Matthew, the 16th chapter. And when you get there, please say, Amen. Jesus was having a dialogue with the disciples. And I love to talk about it because the Word of God is inexhaustible. You cannot get tired of the Word of God, especially when you love the one who inspired it all. When you think about God and how he worked through his Holy Spirit to bring these words to us. And I can look back at my life and I can remember being a very, very ignorant man. In fact, one who had no interest in the word of God at all. I was interested in parties. I was interested in clubs. I was interested in being famous and all these other things. And here it is that the Lord could actually get a person to a place where he loves so much the things of the world. But God has a way of revealing himself to us that all of the things of this world, when we rightly behold Christ, all the things of this world become strangely dim. And you begin to behold the one who is altogether lovely. And I pray that you will see Jesus just as that, altogether lovely. Because it's only when we see Christ as altogether lovely, we will see ourselves as altogether ugly. And we will no longer put trust in self. The Bible tells us something beautiful in the book of Matthew, the 16th chapter. Jesus was asking a question to his disciples in verse 13. And the Bible says in Matthew 16 and verse 13, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, so one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, Well, whom say ye that I am? Forget about what everybody else thinks. Tell me what you think. And therefore Jesus asked them that direct question. And notice what Simon says in verse 16. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build what? I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the first time the word church appears in all the Bible. The first time. This is the first mention, if you will. This is the first time the word church appears in the Bible. Certainly not the last, but it's the first. And when Jesus was making this point here, he was basically acknowledging Peter's statements that he was the rock. 
upon which the church would be built. We know that it was not Peter. It was none other than Christ that was being confessed. And when Jesus heard Peter acknowledge him as the son of the living God, he said, truly, flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee. You see, the Bible lets us know in 1 Corinthians 12, the reality of how anyone can confess Christ. And I want you to see what it says. Keep your finger on Matthew 16, but go to 1 Corinthians 12. It was not just, you know, happenstance that Jesus was saying to Peter that flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee. Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, and I want you to see how anyone can ultimately truly confess Christ. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you're there, please say amen. amen. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have ye ignorant. Ye know that ye were Gentiles carried away unto these dumb idols, even as ye were led. Wherefore, I give you to understand that how many men? It says that no man speaking by the spirit of God calleth Jesus a curse. And that how many men? And that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. Peter was not being led by his own flesh. Peter was being led by none other than the Holy Spirit. And the Bible makes it known to you and I that when Peter made this confession, it was because God was illuminating his mind and helping him to understand spiritual things. We need to understand that we cannot read this book and think that we can walk away with a clear understanding except it be led by God's Spirit. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Now, when Jesus acknowledges this, he then commends him and tells him this same rock that you have confessed, he says, will be the foundation of the church. I looked up the word church and the word church is a very interesting word in the Greek. It's a Greek word called ecclesia. And you know what the word church means? It means the called out ones. Whenever you think of the word church, you have to remember the word ecclesia. It means the what? The called out ones. So when Jesus was saying, I will establish or build my church, he was saying, I'm going to establish and build a group of called out ones. This is what God's view was when he was thinking of church. A lot of people today think of church as simply a building that you show up to and that you go ahead and have some type of worship and do a few spiritual things. And then that is it in the name of church. But in God's mind, when he thought of the word church, it was something much deeper. In the mind of Christ, he was thinking, when I think of this word church, I think of the called out ones. And the question is, called out of what? 1 Peter chapter 2. The Bible says in the book of 1 Peter, we're going to consider chapter 2. What is it that the church, the people, have been called out of? Because you and I, if somebody came to you tonight and said, excuse me, do you go to a church or are you part of a church? More than likely, the grand sweeping majority of us are going to say, yes, I am part of a church. Yes, I am a member of the church. But we're understanding that the word church means the called out ones. And the question is called out of what? First Peter chapter two, the Bible says in the book of first Peter, we're now considering chapter two. And I want you to see what it says as we look at verse nine, the Bible says in first Peter chapter two, right there in verse nine, it says, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation and a peculiar people that we should show forth the praises of him who hath called us out of something. What did we get called out of? He called us out of what? Darkness into his marvelous light. So whenever you think of the word church, you're thinking about the called out ones. And the question is called out of what? And the answer is 
darkness, and we've been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. Now, that means we need to understand darkness. Because if you and I say that we are the church, we are members of the church, we often attend the church. If we're using these terms, we need to understand that the word church means the called out ones. And we've been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. So whenever you think of this term darkness, it's very simple. Darkness is the absence of light. Is that right? For God commanded the light to shine out of Darkness. Whenever you think of darkness, you're thinking the absence of light. Is that simple enough? So I want you to think about this. If somebody came to you and said, listen, are you part of the church? Are you the church or anything like that? If we were to say in the affirmative, yes, I'm part of the church. Yes, I'm a member of the church. Yes, I represent. I'm one of the representatives of God's church. Then what we're saying is that we are representatives of individuals who have been called out of darkness into God's marvelous Light and the word darkness is that which is absence of light. So I believe it becomes imperative for us to understand what does the Bible call light? Because the Bible says the church is made up of people that have been called out of darkness. Darkness is the absence of light. So then we need to find out what light is. And if we don't have that in our lives, then we could be in darkness. And if we're in darkness, are we really representatives of God's church? No, we're not fulfilling the desire of God. So what is light? It's very simple. Psalms 119. Fundamental text. But it's good to rehearse them. It's good to review them and to think about them, to consider them. When you look at Psalms, the 119th division, notice what the Bible says as we consider Psalms 119. And now we're going to look at verse 105. Psalm 119. And now we're looking at verse 105 because we just want to understand what constitutes light. Because darkness is the absence of light. The Bible says in Psalm 119, 105, it says, if you're there, say amen. Amen. The Bible says, thy what? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So one of the things the Bible calls light is none other than God's word. If a man or if a woman professes to be part of God's church, they represent themselves as a member of God's church, then they're representing themselves as the called out ones. And they have been called out of Darkness into God's marvelous light. And the Bible says one of the things that's called light is God's word. When an individual says, I am a representative of God's church, but they do not live by the word. They choose to live by their opinions. They choose to live by their traditions. They choose to live by their own ideologies and idiosyncrasies. When an individual chooses to live outside of God's word, they're testifying they are not in light. They're still in darkness. And that becomes a very serious issue when we begin to profess ourselves as God's church. If we are truly God's church, then that means that we do not live by what we think is right. We do not live by what we feel is right. We don't even live by what we perceive is right. You know, sometimes perception can be very dangerous. There was a time that a man by the name of Saul... He was going around practicing abomination and he decided to go ahead and counsel with a witch... 
And as he went to counsel with that witch in 1 Samuel 28, and when he went to counsel with that witch, here it is that as he was counseling with them, all of a sudden there was this ground that was opening and they saw something coming up and down out of the ground. And as they saw it, it says he perceived that it was Samuel. That was a bad and dangerous perception because he was not consulting with Samuel. He was consulting with demons. It is dangerous to even live by perception when we have the privilege to know the word of God. I read a little book called Great Controversy. You heard of that book, haven't you? In the book Great Controversy, we're told in page 598, it says we have a chart that points out every way mark on the heavenward journey. And we ought not guess at anything. You don't have to guess what the word says when God has given us the word that we can understand it. This is God's light. And we need to learn how to live and be the people of light. But the Bible goes on. It goes deeper than that. Go to Proverbs 6. We're talking about light. You see, remember, the church represents the called out ones. What is it we've been called out of? We've been called out of darkness. Darkness is the absence of light. So therefore, if we truly been called out of darkness and into God's light, then we should be living in harmony with the light. So therefore, we're looking at the word of God to say, well, what is light? God says, my word is light. So if we are living lives that we are every day humbling ourselves before God and his word, when you choose your job, you go to the word. When you choose your clothes, you go to the word. Before you eat food, you go to the word. Before you dare to think about who you're going to marry or who you're going to court, you go to the word. Literally, this is how the church was supposed to live in the eyes of Jesus. When Jesus thought of the church, it was much bigger, broader, deeper than some building that everybody shows up to once a week. Says a few nice things about God and leave. And people literally have a contentment with that and actually think we are representatives of God's church. When God said that was not my intention. You and I were supposed to be a bunch of people called out of darkness. But when we choose to live by my opinions... What I think, nobody can tell me what to do. I'm the boss of me. When we have this kind of attitude, we are testifying we are still in darkness. Because we're not walking in the light as Jesus is in the light. But it's not just the word. Proverbs 6 goes even deeper. If you look at Proverbs, the 6th chapter, what does it say right there in verse 23? The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, we're now looking at the 6th chapter and we're looking at the 23rd verse. The Bible says, for the commandment is a lamp. And the what? The law is light. Notice that. The commandment is a lamp and the law is light. So in Psalms 119, it says, thy word is a lamp and is a light. Now we're looking at God's commandment is a lamp and his law is a light. An individual who truly has been called out of darkness into God's light is an individual who seeks to live a life in harmony with God's holy law. There is no way that an individual can truly say that I represent the church of God, the called out ones, called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. Yet they will deliberately reject the light of God's holy law. They say the Sabbath is irrelevant. They say, I don't really need to honor my father, my mother. They say, you know what? I know it says thou shalt not kill. I won't kill another man, but I'll kill my own self by how I eat and how I drink and commit slow suicide. It is amazing how people can actually say we are the church, the called out ones. Yet many a times we are rejecting the very light that God has shined so brightly and so beautifully right in front of our faces. 
So if we truly are representatives of God's church, not only are we going to go ahead and live lives in harmony with his word, not only are we going to live lives in harmony with his law, but brothers and sisters, there's something else the Bible calls life. Go to the book of John, the ninth chapter. In John, the ninth chapter, notice what else the Bible calls life. John, we're looking at the ninth chapter. The Bible says in the book of John, the ninth chapter, right there in verse five. The Bible says in John chapter 9, and I like this, because if an individual truly and rightly is living their lives in harmony with God's word, in harmony with God's holy law, you know what it ultimately produces? John 9 and verse 5. The Bible says in John 9 and verse 5, it says, as long as I am in the world, I am what? The light of the world. Brothers and sisters, if we truly representatives of God's church, we must understand that the word church means the called out ones. And what is it that we've been called out of? We've been called out of darkness. And brothers and sisters, what is darkness? It's the absence of light. So therefore, whenever we look at the word, we need to understand what does God say constitutes light in this spiritual context. And God says, my word is light. So our lives should be in harmony with God's word. God says, my law is light. So our lives should be in harmony with God's holy law. Jesus says, I am the light. That means that our lives should be Christ-like. This is what God always intended. This is literally what Jesus intended when he thought about this thing he was going to be the foundation of, which is called the church. A people who live by his words. A people who honor him and his law. A people who ultimately reflect even the very character of Christ. In a sinful world. This is what Jesus' concept of church was. And therefore, when somebody asks you the question, are you a member of a church? Are you the representative of God's church? You and I need to think a little harder. We don't want to just think about where we show up. We don't want to just think about what we participate in. We don't even want to think about what we simply put a few bills or coins in. We want to honestly say, does my life reflect the life of one who has been called out of darkness? Or am I still living according to what I think is right? Not understanding there's only one path that that leads to. You see, if you study Proverbs 14 and verse 12, the Bible says there is a way that seemeth right unto a man. But the end thereof are the ways of death. Why in the world would we want to live like that? Why live by what we think is right when we have the opportunity to live by God's word? When we have the opportunity to honor him and his law, that we have an opportunity to reflect the image of Jesus in a very sinful and dying world. You see, brothers and sisters, I believe that this understanding that we're studying tonight on what constitutes a church. I believe that the grand majority of people who call themselves Christians don't understand this truth that we're studying. And you know why I believe that? Because. If we were truly living the life of Christ, do you know that whenever Jesus would come into an area, did Jesus live by the word? Did Jesus honor his father's law? Now watch this. Did you know that whenever Jesus came into a town, did you notice people was always pressing and getting closer to him? You don't read one story in the Bible where Jesus shows up and everybody scatters. I want you to think about that. There is nothing in any of the stories of scripture where Christ shows up and everybody says, let's leave. People start pressing around them. They start getting closer to them. Are you following that? 
Now the church was supposed to emit this light, the same light and life of Christ, it was supposed to emit this to the world. Now the reason I know that the grand majority of people in this world today, in this country especially, they do not understand this truth is because, notice, Time Magazine, June 17th, 2015, this year, as Americans become less religious, confidence in the church as an institution is plummeting. People are leaving the church. People are running away from the church. People are saying, I'm tired of church. And I don't believe people are tired of Christ. I believe Jesus is absolutely magnetic. I believe if Jesus lived in your neighborhood, everybody would know him. I believe when Jesus would walk in a grocery store, Jesus would know people by their first name and they would know who he is. I believe if Jesus were to walk around in, in the various neighborhoods, jobs and businesses and places that we go to day by day, I firmly believe that if Christ was there, somebody would have a testimony of something that Jesus did for them, their household, their children or somebody. Jesus is magnetic. But here it is that we're being told as Americans become less what? Religious. It says confidence in the church as an institution is plummeting. It says, according to a recent Gallup poll, faith in organized religion dropped this year to just 42% in the U.S., its lowest point ever. America is becoming a more and more irreligious place. People are thinking about church and they say, I have no desire for it. And don't you think that that excludes our church? If you check the percentages on the growth of the Seventh-day Adventist church, it's quite pathetic. Especially in America. We might be doing better than others, but it's kind of like everybody in your class getting an F. And here it is that we got a C minus. Would you brag about a C minus? Now, I'm not saying that to beat up on the church. Hear me good. What I'm saying is, is that we have to look at things in the right perspective. We are not seeing the kind of growth that we saw in the days of the pioneers in America. And the question is why? Because there's a very serious and profound answer, brothers and sisters. God wants us to understand that right now people are turning away from the church. And I believe it's because instead of us representing being called out of darkness, maybe it's because now churches are embracing darkness. Are you following? So therefore, it goes on to say more Americans are now identifying as non-religious or as members of a non-Christian faith, according to the poll, which came from a sample of 1,527 individuals, including Protestants and Catholics from all 50 states. Now watch this point. Here's the next point. According to Gallup, the biggest recent drop seems to be amongst who? Protestants. So when you think about people in America that are actually leaving the church, getting turned off with church, it actually is more applicable to the so-called Protestant faith. I want you to hold on to that. It says, according to Gallup, the biggest recent drop seems to be amongst Protestants, not necessarily Catholics. Confidence in the Protestant church fell from 55% to 51% in the past year in a steady decline since it reached 65% approval in 2009. People are beginning to question more and more what is the relevance of Protestant churches. And you hold on to this, brothers and sisters. You are going to see some very serious things this weekend. We're going to tie these things in very tightly. Because there is a very, very specific attack upon Protestantism that's happening in our world right now. And God is actually counting on somebody to fix the problem. 
So I want you to see what inspiration is showing us. If you think about it, how does the Bible even define God's church? I mean, you know, I said it to you. I said Jesus said that the church is the called out ones according to the Greek. But it goes even deeper than that. When God would define his church, I want you to see how the Bible actually does it. And the reason why is because the light is lifting up something. And I want you to see what it is. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15. The Bible says, but if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of what? So notice that when God refers to the church, he sees it as a pillar and ground of truth. When an individual wants to know truth, they were supposed to find it in the church. You understand that? It was supposed to be the very pillar. And ground, brothers and sisters, you got to understand, a structure has no hope without a pillar and a ground. Do you understand that? A structure has no hope. If, you, if all you have is roofs and this, that, and the other, and you have no pillars to hold it up, and you have no ground to hold the pillars, that structure is going to crumble. Is that right? So when God was looking at the church, he was saying, when I think of the church, I'm telling you the truth. When I started to lay my opinions in the dust and I started asking God, what do you call the church? What do you feel about the church? What was your idea and goal for the church? The more that I think about it, I have learned that God has a much higher standard than we do. Much higher standard. God says, when I think of my church, I think of it as the very pillar and ground of truth. So here it is that I said, all right, well, that's going to launch me into another study now. You know why? Because I wanted to understand not biblically simply what is light. I wanted to understand biblically what is truth. Because I want to know that from God's perspective. You understand that? So I started looking. So here it is. I started my search. The Bible says in John 17, 17, sanctify through thy truth. Thy what? Thy word is truth. So when you come to the church, we should be a body of believers that do not base our opinions on what we think or what we feel. We base our opinions on the word. That's why I'm thankful for the vote. Can you say amen to that? That's why I was thankful for the vote. Somebody says, what vote? What are you talking about? Y'all, ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) brothers and sisters, are you not aware that we had a very serious vote that had to go forward this past couple of months? Is that right? Now watch this. Somebody says, oh, Brother Levin, but, but the battle's not over. Listen, I know that. I'm very clear that the battle's not over. I understand that. But what I'm thankful for is that that vote allowed us to have one step closer to truth rather than one step further away from truth. You see, I don't think we really understood what would have happened if the vote had been yes for the women's ordination. I don't think we understand what would have happened. You see, I was going through my little history here, so I'm going to go ahead and pull it out real quick. I was reading Great Controversy. And I appreciate a man by the name of Don McIntosh because what he did was he put together a study where he showed a direct connection from the secular world and from other denominations. And there was a direct connection between women's ordination and the endorsing and strengthening of the gay movement. And he pulled out all the facts and was showing it point by point. I have a little book even on my iPad that shows it literally. And this was not written by Seventh-day Adventists. And it actually shows a Protestant. They said the connection between women's ordination and homosexuality. Yes. And I was saying, man, this is powerful. But watch this. You see, we don't understand what would have happened. If the vote would have been yes, something horrible would have taken place. 
You think we're in trouble already? Oh, brothers and sisters, this would have dug a hole that would have been so deep. You see, one day I was reading the book Great Controversy. And when I was reading Great Controversy, I specifically took attention to Great Controversy, page 289. And I want you to read it. And I want you to listen to this because I'm going to just read this portion to you. If you listen to this, I want you to watch what inspiration was showing us and how God did something special with that vote. I don't care what anybody says. Everybody, Brother Levin, don't you know they're still commissioning? I'm like, listen, one thing remains to be a fact. We took a step in the right direction. Nobody can deny that part. And what I'm saying is, is that if the Lord leads us on step by step, as volume three of the testimonies tell us, then if we take a right step, the church has nothing else to say but amen. Now watch this. When you look at this, this is what it says. This is under the chapter, the Pilgrim Fathers, chapter 16, Great Controversy, page 289. Now listen to this and listen to it very carefully. This is why I rejoice. This is why I said amen when the vote was no. Watch this. It says the English reformers while renouncing the doctrines of Romanism, had retained many of its forms. Listen carefully. The English, what kind of people they were called? Reformers. Okay? According to the Roman Catholicism, they hated that word, reformers. Because the only thing that was being reformed was the very teachings that they were trying to bring to the people and the people were being made free from the falsehoods and their lives and their worship and their churches were being reformed. So it says the English reformers, while renouncing the doctrines, listen carefully, while renouncing the doctrines of Romanism, had retained many of its forms. Now watch this. It says, thus, though the authority and the creed of Rome were rejected, not a few of her customs and ceremonies were incorporated into the worship of the Church of England. Now watch. It was claimed. In other words, if they refuted the doctrines of Romanism, why did they keep some of their means of ceremonies and worship styles? Why did they keep that? Here's the answer. It was claimed that these things were not matters of conscience. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't know if you paid attention to the arguments over the past couple of years. But literally, some of the arguments, especially for, was some of the same arguments that these English reformers were using. This is what they said. They said it was claimed that these things were not matters of conscience, that though they were not commanded in Scripture and hence were not essential, yet not being forbidden, they were not intrinsically evil. Literally, they were saying, we're going to break away from Rome and their false doctrines. But we're going to maintain some of its forms and ceremonies in our worship. The question was, well, why are you holding on to their forms and ceremonies of worship? They said, because there's nothing in the Bible that commands us to do it. And there's nothing in the Bible that says we can't do it. I wonder what that type of thinking did. Because that was a lot of type of thinking that a lot of people were presenting to vote yes. Listen. It says their observance tended to narrow the gulf which separated the reformed churches from Rome. Do you understand that? As a result of maintaining the ceremonies and the worship, even though they were renouncing the doctrine, what it did was it narrowed the gulf and they became more and more like Roman Catholics themselves. You understand that? If the vote would have been yes, brothers and sisters, it would have narrowed the gulf even more between us and the world. 
And this is why I am thankful that people were studying, people were praying, and people were standing for the word. And they were saying, we are God's church. We don't go by what we feel. We don't go by what we think. We are going to go according to what the word says. And as a result of that, I believe the word won. And it's for that reason that I said amen for that vote. Is the battle over? Brothers and sisters, I am way to opened upon my eyes to know better than to say the battle is over. The battle is far from over. But I am so grateful that we took a step in the right direction. You know, it's funny. When a church takes a step in the wrong direction, it sure is big news, isn't it? It's amazing. When a church takes a step and makes a bad decision, it's amazing how that, that thing becomes top-notch news for certain present truth preachers. They can't wait to post it on websites and tell everybody about the bad step. But once the church takes a good step, it's amazing the dead silence that happens even over cyberspace. The church is the pillar and ground of truth. What is truth? God says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. But it goes deeper than that because John 16 and verse 13 says, how be it when he, the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth. If we're truly the church of God, not only will we stand according to the word, but we also should be led by God's spirit. There should be a demonstration of both gifts and fruit. Whenever you think of the ministration of God's spirit, you think of both gifts and fruit. Gifts of the spirit, 1 Corinthians 12. Fruit of the spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Both should be seen in God's church that constitutes the pillar and ground of truth. Are you following so far? Then going on. Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, Psalms 119, 142, and thy law is truth. The church is the pillar and ground of truth. Whatever the Bible calls truth should be found in the church. And when we think about that, God's church, therefore, should stand upon his word. God's church should demonstrate the power of his spirit and the ministration of his spirit. But number three, they also should be a commandment keeping people. Thy law is truth. But then going on, John 14, 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the truth. The church is the pillar and ground of truth. That means everything the Bible calls truth should be found in the church. And the question is, is, are these the things that govern your life? Are these the things that hold deep passion in your heart? Are these the things that you and I seek for and search for every day to seek? How can my life be more in harmony with thy truth? Or have we become comfortable just being nominal Seventh-day Adventists? Comfortable Seventh-day Adventists. Seeing everybody every week and saying, hello, how you doing? And going through the motions when we know there are deep-rooted voids within our heart because we don't know how to walk in the light of God's truth. This is what God's intention was. And here's where it gets deep. I thought about it. Did you know everything the Bible calls truth can all be summed up and found in one very specific place called the sanctuary? Amen. It's kind of amazing if you think about it. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Is the word of God in the sanctuary? Yes, it is. Where do we find a word? Where do we find a word? Where? Where? So when you walk inside of that holy place and you look to your right, there goes that table of shoe bread. Is that right? Then it says, how be it when he the spirit.
Spirit of truth has come. Do we find the Holy Spirit in the sanctuary? Where? The lampstand. Well, it's not the lampstand, is it? It's the oil in the lampstand that keeps the light shining. Is that right? Because we know Zechariah 4, 6 lets us know that God's Holy Spirit is typified of oil. Very good. Then it says, thy law is truth. Is the law in the sanctuary? Where? Right there in the Ark of the Testament, the most holy place. Then it says, Jesus said, I am the truth. Is Jesus in the sanctuary? Where? How is he represented? Through the high priest. So notice that literally everything the Bible calls truth, not only should be found in the church, can also be found in the sanctuary. Therefore, God's church should hold a message that constitutes the sanctuary as well. Doesn't that make sense? Now, brothers and sisters, this is why it gets interesting. Go to Daniel 8. You see, you remember, you're going to Daniel 8, but you remember what Jesus said. He said to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not what? Now, the fact that Christ said the gates of hell shall not prevail against it indicates that the gates of hell will attack it. You understand that? The gates of hell will not prevail, but that also indicates that the gates of hell will attack. You understand? So that was an indirect point that Christ was trying to bring out when he was teaching Matthew 16's principle of the foundation of the church. Are you following that, saints? So therefore, the Bible makes it clear that there was going to be an attack. And in the book of Daniel, the 8th chapter, we get an idea of this attack. So we're in the book of Daniel, the 8th chapter. And if you're there, please let me know by saying amen. The Bible says in the book of Daniel, we're looking at the 8th chapter. And I want you to see what the text says as we consider this little horn power. The Bible says in Daniel chapter 8, we're going to go ahead and consider Daniel 8. And we're going to look at verses 11 and 12. In Daniel chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, the Bible says, Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of hosts, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down something. What did it cast down? It cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. So Satan, working through this little horn power, was seeking to cast down the very thing that makes the church the pillar and ground. It was seeking to cast down God's truth. Now the reason why this is important is because we need to understand Satan's method of attacking God's church. Jesus said the gates of hell shall not prevail, which indicates that there will be an attack. It just simply means the gates of hell won't win. Now... Satan is going to attack God's church. Daniel, the prophet, definitely makes that clear that the little horn power was going to definitely seek to cast down the truth. And he did seek to do that. But now let's talk about it. When you think of Satan's method of attacking God's church, one of the things that I always like to help people understand, and we teach this also to our missionaries, is we help them understand Satan always attacks God's church on par with how it exists. You know, God's church went through phases. And Satan would always attack God's church on par with its existence. I'll give you an example. We know that there's a little statement in the book Acts of the Apostles, page 11, that tells us from the beginning of time that God's church was represented by faithful souls. You ever heard that before? Faithful souls, the church is constituted of the faithful souls, right? Well, that is true. God, in the beginning of time, established the church simply as faithful souls. So what did Satan do? Satan says, all right, well, then I will attack the church by raising up what kind of souls? 
unfaithful souls. Examples are like Abel, Seth, Enos, and the unfaithful souls were people like Cain and Lamech. So literally, when God's church is represented simply by faithful souls, Satan would attack the church by setting up unfaithful souls. And this is how he would attack. But a time came that God would go to Abram. And when God went to Abram, God made Abram know that a time is going to come where he's going to make his church not simply represented by faithful souls, but he was going to be represented by a chosen nation. Satan says, all right, if you're going to set up your church as a chosen nation, then Satan says, then I'll attack it with rebellious nations. So we have the chosen nation, Israel, the rebellious nation, the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, etc., so Satan is always attacking God's church on par with its existence. Faithful souls, unfaithful souls. Chosen nation, rebellious nation. Unfortunately, the chosen nation began to get so deeply rooted in sin, lost sight of their mission, that God extended a probationary time period unto his people. Is that right? And God gave them 490 years to get their act together. And they, unfortunately, by AD 34, were no longer representatives of God as a nation. It's not that Jews could not be saved, but they were no longer the sole representatives of God as a nation. Their probation closed in AD 34. So what did the church transition to? It transitioned to the Christian church. Satan says, all right, if you're going to set up the Christian church, then Satan says, then I'll attack it by setting up the apostate church. So when you think of the Christian church, the church that was built by the apostles, when you think of the apostate church, you're thinking of none other than the papacy. And the question is, what happened when Satan worked through the apostate church to attack the Christian church? The Bible tells us what happened. Go to the book of Revelation, chapter 12. In Revelation, the 12th chapter, notice what the Bible says. In Revelation, chapter 12, you see, God wanted to set up that church. He wanted to set up that pillar and ground of truth. He wanted to set up his called out ones so that we could light the earth with his glory. But the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12, a very solemn reality, that when the church was persecuted, remember the gates of hell shall not prevail, but it definitely will attack. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 12, we're starting at verse 13. It says, and when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he did something to the woman. What did he do? It says he persecuted the woman, which brought forth the man child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into a place where she is nourished for a time, times and half a time from the face of the serpent. God's church had to go in hiding. God's church had to now run into the wilderness, go in caves. The light was no longer privileged to shine in its full brightness as an established body of believers because the church was under attack. Well, here it is that as the church was under attack, God says, I'm going to build back up my light. God says, I'm going to build back up my church. God says, I am going to get what I want. And God began to work point by point and piece by piece. He started to raise up people like this man here. Anybody knows who that is? It's not Zwingli. Not Huss. That is none other than John Wycliffe. And John Wycliffe, what was his contribution to Christianity? What was John Wycliffe's contribution to Christianity? What did he do? Translation. So he brought people back to the Bible. He was bringing people back to the truth. He was bringing people back to the light. Are you following? Eventually, John Wycliffe, of course, his time ran out and he went to sleep. But another man eventually came up into the scene. Does anybody know who that is? 
Martin Luther. What was Martin Luther's contribution to Christianity? Say again. Righteousness by faith. Righteousness by faith is a bit broad. More specifically, what was Martin Luther's contribution? More specifically, Sola Scriptura, that's true. There's a reason he's called the father of the Reformation. And him being the father of the Reformation took place as a result of him doing something that became the impetus of his work. 95 Thesis. What was the 95 Thesis really talking about? What was the point of the 95 Thesis? It was talking about, not necessarily just exposing the Pope, even though that was true, but you know what I like about it? He exposed the Pope by teaching truth. No wonder Ellen White says the best way the best way to counter error is by teaching truth. That's what he did. He took the 95 Thesis, nailed it on the wall at the Church of Wittenberg, and it was teaching the truth on how a man is justified. So when you think of Martin Luther's contribution, it was justification by faith. It's very important. You'll understand as we progress throughout the weekend. Then another man came on the scene. Anybody knows who that is? Not Calvin. Think of the father of the Methodist Church, John Wesley. What was John Wesley's contribution to Christianity? What was John Wesley's contribution to Christianity? His contribution was sanctification by faith. Martin Luther brought in the first piece to righteousness by faith, which is justification. John Wesley, he brought in the other piece to righteousness by faith, which was sanctification. John Wesley, before there was ever a Seventh-day Adventist, he and many of his comrades were the ones teaching biblical perfection. Sometimes people say that's a bad word. No, it's a good word. It's in the Bible. And the Bible makes it very clear that perfection is possible through Christ. Amen. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. So here it is that John Wesley, his contribution was sanctification by faith. God was piece by piece, step by step, rebuilding his pillar and his ground. God was bringing the light back together because God knew I have appointed a time where again I'm going to let my light shine on this earth. Now, another man came on the scene. This man did a wonderful work. Boy, do we need to hear more from him. Or from the teachings that he gave. Does anybody know who he is? Give you a clue. Rhode Island. Oh man, that was a good clue. <laughs> Rhode Island is none other than Roger Williams. When you think of Roger Williams, what was his contribution to Christianity? It was religious liberty. Religious liberty. Could we use some of that today? Oh, you better believe it. Here it is. Roger Williams. Religious liberty. I want you to think of all of these things we're studying. Back to the Bible. Justification. Sanctification. Religious liberty. How about this man? Now, I, you better get this one right. Who is that? All right. That's William Miller. Now, what was his contribution to Christianity? Sanctuary? I don't think so. Very good. The second coming of Jesus Christ based on Daniel 8.14. Now, why is this important for us? You see, do me a favor. Don't take lightly our simple little exercise. You need to know your church history. Now, why do you need to know it? It's very simple. The reason why I enjoy going over this with God's people, even though I'm doing a fairly rapid pace because I know we don't just have hours to study it. Do you know why this is important? We have terrible scenes that are getting ready to come to the people of God in this world. And if we don't understand two things, we are going to be a people filled with fear.
rather than faith, even the faith of Jesus. We are told very clearly, we have nothing to fear for the future, except as we forget the way the Lord has led us in past history and teachings. The two things that we must understand was God's past teachings and we must understand how God led in our past history. If you and I are not acquainted with how the Lord was leading us, leading our people, bringing his truth back to the light out of darkness, then I wouldn't be surprised if we're filled with more fear than faith. I wouldn't be surprised. So this is why you don't want to take it light. Now, when this took place, go to Revelation 10. We know that something took place. Now, I want you to think about this and just keep this in mind. As we're going through this study, we're now at the point of the 1800s. We know there were many other reformers that played beautiful parts in the rebuilding of God's pillar, God's ground of truth, in the rebuilding and bringing people back to the light and pulling them out of darkness. I just highlighted a few. But watch this. By the time we get to this time period in Earth's history, when we get to William Miller and what's known as the Advent Movement, when we get to this movement, brothers and sisters, God wanted us to understand something very important, very special. Go to the book of Revelation 10 now. And I want you to see what the Bible says in Revelation 10. We know it. We've heard it before at least. But now we're going to consider it. In Revelation 10 verses 9 and 10. All right. Revelation 10, 9 and 10. The Bible says, And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. We understand this to be the experience that came from this movement, this era. And again, don't use the term Millerite movement unless you're just talking about America. But if you're talking about the world at large, the better term is the Advent movement. You understand that? Because there are a lot of people that was also teaching Daniel 8.14 at the same time period, closing at 1844, October 22, but they were not Americans. And they were not following Miller. You understand that? It's a simple historical point that can help you when the historians try to pick to part every piece of our faith as we have been prophetically told will happen. Now, why is this important? Because... It was right at this time that they went through that bitter belly experience. They thought Christ was coming. He did not come. And then it was a great disappointment. But then the people of God began to study. And then verse 11 came in. So what does it say in verse 11? The whole summarization of the movement of seven-day Adventists is based on two very important words in Revelation 10, 11. It says in Revelation 10, 11, And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy what? Again, before many people and nations and tongues and kings. And that verse means everything to seven-day Adventists. It means everything. Because the reason we exist is to prophesy again. That's why we exist. There's no other reason why we exist. And once we forget that, and we start jumping and delving into every other endeavor, we will find ourselves ultimately being lost if we are not careful. The whole purpose of who we are and why we exist is to prophesy again. But I thought about it. Again, that means that something was said that needs to be what? Repeated. So when somebody says, 
thou must prophesy again. The first thing I did was I looked up the word again. I said, okay, well, what does that word mean? And here's what I found. The word again means once more or furthermore. I appreciate that. Because I'm going to be honest with you. There's a plague in Adventism, which is this. We listen to each other a lot. And what happens is we develop something called the Seventh-day Adventist lingo. You know, when we say 1260, remnant, finish the work. When we use these terms, we know these as good old coined Seventh-day Adventist terms that we all say around each other all the time. But the problem is, is that when we sit down with people who are not part of our faith, which is our commission, when we sit amongst people that are not part of our faith, they cannot necessarily understand the things that we think we understand so clearly. So when the Bible says prophesy again, it will make it sound like just repeat something. But I appreciated the fact that it doesn't just mean that. It means once more, but it also means what? Furthermore. That means something beyond what was stated. You follow that? So then when I think about these angels, when I think about that, it becomes very important to me. In fact, I'm not going to put it up here. I'm going to ask you a question. What was it that needed to be repeated? When it says, thou must prophesy again. When we think about that, what was it that had to be repeated? Thou must prophesy again. Something has to be stated once more. What has to be repeated? Message. What message? Were the three angels' messages given prior to October 22, 1844? Okay, I'm seeing yes, I'm seeing no. What do you say? I will let you know the answer is no. You can't say the three angels' messages were given prior to October 22, 1844. That is an incorrect statement. I'm telling you, saints, you don't want somebody to call you on that. It's better to make that mistake here, but don't make it out there when you're studying with souls and you're trying to bring them to God's truth. That is not true. What was it that was preached during the time of the Advent movement, which is inclusive of Elder Miller, that needs to be repeated? Jesus is coming in judgment. This is true. Jehovah's Witnesses preach that. So can Jehovah's Witnesses prophesy again? I see a head saying, yeah. Is that true? Can Jehovah's Witnesses fulfill Revelation 10, 11? Absolutely not. The uplifting of God's Ten Commandments. So the seven-day Baptists say, amen. That's what we're doing. Can seven-day Baptists prophesy again? Can't prophesy again. Come on, saints, talk to me. Give glory to God. Lots of ways to do that. Pentecostal will say, give glory to God, you know, dancing, everything else. They'll say, that's giving glory to God. Did they preach the sanctuary before October 22, 1844? Babylon is fallen. Okay, now that's true. That is correct. That was one thing that was taught. What is that called, brother? Just think about what kind of message is that called? Prophetic. That's true. I want you to even super simplify it for me. I'm asking you this because somebody else is going to ask you. Listen to me, saints. I'm going to talk to you from my heart. God's people have gotten to a place. We know how to talk to each other so much. We don't know how to talk to people outside of our faith yet. And God can't use us. We don't understand how this makes Jesus weep. That he's like, I want to work through my people to help those people that don't know this message. And we don't even know this. 
What I'm saying to you, saints, is that we must get to a place where we understand God's word so clearly that it doesn't matter if you're Seventh-day Adventist, feast day, Seventh-day Adventist, 25-20, Seventh-day Adventist, nominal member in the church, or if you're Pentecostal, apostolic, atheist, or Muslim, we can give the same message. This is what we hammer in the heads of our missionaries over there, is that you guys got to learn how to break out of this SDA lingo stuff, and you got to know how to talk Bible. Explain the word. Brothers and sisters, it's very simple. Was the message, fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come? Was that preached prior to October 22, 1844? Yes or no? He said no. The answer is yes. Did William Miller read Great Controversy 366 and 367? Let me give it to you. I just want to give it to you. I told you this is class tonight. No more preaching, man. I'm telling you, that, that's why we don't need no more preaching. We need more, much more teaching. Much more teaching. I'm in Great Controversy 366. Listen to this. Great Controversy 366. Scandinavia, the movement. All right, here we go. Ready? Listen to it. Great Controversy 366. The child preachers themselves were mostly poor cottagers. Some of them were not more than six or eight years of age. And while their lives testified that they loved the Savior and were trying to live in obedience to God's holy requirements, they ordinarily manifested only the intelligence and ability usually seen in the children that age. When standing before the people, however, it was evident that they were moved by an influence beyond their own natural gifts. Tone and matter changed. And with solemn power, they gave the warning of the judgment, employing the very words of Scripture fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. Were children as young as six and eight years old in the 1800s, were they preaching the first angel's message? Yes. You get that? You understand that? So, when it says thou must prophesy again, are we to repeat the first angel's message? Yes or no? Yes. yes. But, what's going to be different? Talk to me. What's going to be different? Are we just going to repeat what they preached, or will there be something different? Second and third angel's message. Oh, no, no, no. Stay in first angel with me. It's Is there going to be some? It's imminent. Oh, yes, that's true. But there's more. Was there something else? Yes, there was something else. You want to know what it was? Notice. We must give it with a, what's those two words right there? Correct understanding of the ministration of Christ where? When they said, fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come. They were preaching from Daniel chapter 8, verse what? Daniel 8, 14 says, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Where did they believe the sanctuary was? Earth. Was that correct? No. So are we going to repeat the message they preached? But we're going to do it with what? A correct understanding. You get it? That's what we're going to do. 
So when it says thou must prophesy again, yes, we're going to prophesy again. We're going to teach it again, but we're going to do it now with the correct understanding. We're not going to tell the people the sanctuary constitutes the earth. We're going to help them understand the ministration of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. You understand that? Very good. All right. How about the second angel? Was that preached before October 22, 1844? Yes or no? Yes or no? Are you sure? Yes. You're sure? Amen. It was. Oh, by the way, I give you notes for it. Read Evangelism 221, paragraph 2. So that way you get it. There's a nice biblical way we could go through it, but we don't have time. So read Evangelism 221, paragraph 2, and it makes it very plain that when we preach the first angel's message again, we're going to do it with the correct understanding. You'll see it come right out of there. Now, second angel's message. Second angel's message was given the summer of 1844. But watch this. We must give it highlighting the what? Additional corruptions entering since 1844 and uniting it with the third angel's message. That's what's going to be different. You ever notice the difference with the first, second, and third angel? You ever notice the difference when you read Revelation 14? You ever catch it? Go there. It's very clear. I'm realizing that Christ did not, he was not playing with us when he said, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word. Watch how words make such a difference. Go to the book of Revelation 14. Notice what it says. In Revelation, the 14th chapter, watch John the Revelator at verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell upon the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with what? A loud voice. Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. Verse 8. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city. Verse 9. And the third angel followed them, saying with a? What's the difference that we see with the three angels? Two are given with loud voices. One just saying. Right? Watch this, though. Go to Revelation 18 now. When you go to Revelation 18, that was on purpose. It was literally deliberate that God did not have it in verse 8 of Revelation 14 with a loud voice. It was deliberate. Why? Because God had to allow something to happen in Revelation 18. When you read Revelation the 18th chapter, what does it say here? It says in Revelation 18. If we're there, say amen. amen. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he what? Cried mightily with a strong voice, right? What is he saying with this mighty strong voice? He's saying Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. So is it a repetition of the second angel's message? Yes, it is. But notice the progression. What does it say? And it has become something. What did it become? The habitation of every foul spirit and cage of every unclean and hateful bird. So, the difference is, when they gave it in the summer of 1844, it was right at its beginning stage, so it was not given with a loud cry yet, because there was simply a rejection of the first angel, but there was not the level of corruption that at that time, it constituted the hold of every foul spirit in the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. 
So under the loud cry, we must give it highlighting the additional corruptions entering since 1844 and uniting it with the third angel's message. Where do we get the reference? Great Controversy 603, paragraph 2, and page 604. You'll see it right there. Everything I just said to you, you'll see it right there. So that way you can study it. Alright? You study it for yourselves. Then, the third angel. Was that given before October 22, 1844? Was it? You don't sound sure. The answer is no. It was not. In other words, remember when we looked up the word? Again, prophesy again. Again can mean once more. When it means once more, it's talking about first and second angel, but now it's talking about with correct and deeper understanding. But when it goes into the third angel, now that's where you have furthermore. You get that? If we rightly understand Revelation 10, 11, humbly I say, no other movement on earth can fulfill it. It's like literally God is saying, I'm counting on this movement. God's saying, I've trusted you with the message that is designed to finish the work and literally bring Christ back and everybody gets to go home who's faithful. God literally says, I'm trusting you with this message. I'm trusting you to prophesy again, to repeat it with correct understanding and deeper insight and furthermore, to give that blessed third angel. But when you give it, don't forget this point. Go to Romans 1 with me. When you go to Romans 1, don't forget Romans 1, 16. When you consider Romans 1 and verse 16, we're winding down, we're getting ready to bring it to a close for phase one of our study. Every single study that we're doing is interconnected. I'm setting up this place right here because we need to see this so we can really understand some final points. When you go to Romans 1 and verse 16, the Bible says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. So when you think of the three angels' messages, it's the everlasting gospel, and God's gospel is power. Power is not limited to something you talk about. Power is also something we demonstrate. Understanding that, when you think of the third angel, we are to understand and most importantly, demonstrate it. If I were to liken what we're doing right now, it's like this weekend you're getting served a meal, tonight is appetizer. It's literally the first phase of the meal to get us ready to digest everything else that's going to be coming in succession. Every message is interconnected, one to the other. God wants us to understand that when he thinks of the church, in his mind, it was more than a building. It was more than just a group of people showing up to do stuff. In the mind of God, it was a group of people that understood, you've been called out. You have been called out of darkness. You've been called into light. And darkness is the absence of light. And therefore, God says, embrace my light. My word, my law, Christ. God says, and when you do that, he says, I'm going to establish you as a pillar and the ground of my truth. What is truth? My word. What is truth? My spirit. What is truth? My law. What is truth? I am. Father, how do you package all this so you can bring it to me? God says, I'm going to package it all right there in the sanctuary. The more you understand the sanctuaries, the more you understand my truth and my light. But the problem is Satan says, oh no. If that's the case, Satan says, then I'm going to do everything possible to use an instrument called that little horn. And he says, and I'm going to use that little instrument to cast down God's truth. 
And the Bible shows that it looked like he had sweeping success because now God's people had to go hide him. The light, the pillar and ground, had to hide. But God says it might look defeated, but God says I'm not defeated. God just says I'm patient. God says I'm patient and I'm methodical. And therefore the Lord piece by piece started to bring back the light, bring back the truth. Wycliffe. Yes, people like Jerome and Huss. Yes, people like Zwingli. Yes, people like Calvin. Yes, like many, many people. Little here, little there. They just started bringing the pieces back together. But eventually God knew a day is going to come where after that disappointment, that bitter belly experience, God says, I'm going to raise up a movement. And when I raise them up, they're not just going to repeat this time with the right understanding and deeper insight, but even furthermore, they're going to give the closing message. The message that is designed to bring everything to a close and I get to be reunited with my bride, God says. And therefore, we got to receive it, saints. We have to receive it. We have to understand it. You got to understand you have an incredibly divine purpose. I had no idea how special it is to be a Seventh-day Adventist. And I say that understanding there's a lot of truth to the statement to whom much is given, much is required. So we have to understand we've been given. God says no other movement can do it. None. There is no denomination. There is no organized structured body. There are no group of religious people. There certainly aren't any worldlings or atheists. There's only one group that God raised up that he says can prophesy again. And so Satan says, I have a plan. I must distract them from understanding who they are. You're going to see it. Councils to Writers and Editors, page 29, paragraph 3, shows you that we need to understand and demonstrate the third angel. Bring out some closing points, I'll let you go. Now watch this. This constitutes the prophesying again. You get that? So this becomes our homework now. Now I need to understand correctly this ministration of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. If I don't understand that, I can't prophesy again. If you don't understand that, you cannot prophesy again. And the Bible is replete with this idea of people who love names while they have no character. You read that in Isaiah 4. You read that in Matthew 25. People who love the name. You read that in Ezekiel 33. It's all over the Bible where people who love to have the name, they love to show up to the meetings, and they even love to listen to the preachers because his voice begins sounding like a sweet song. But Jesus says, the problem is they won't do my words. They just won't do it. We got to plead with God to break us out of that habit. And I'm going to show you the special keys this weekend of how God's going to break us out of that habit. Special keys. So here it is that we're looking at this and God said, this is your work. God said, this is it. We have to get a correct understanding of what's going on here. We have to prepare to give this message again, the second angel's message, highlighting the corruptions and uniting it with this third angel's message that we must understand and practically demonstrate. In the closing work. And that's why it was after William Miller and so many others, it was after that disappointment that men came together. And as they studied the sanctuary, they said, man, this thing is like a key. And here's what they noticed. They said, the subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the mystery of the disappointment of 1844. It opened to view a complete system of what? Remember, that's what God always wanted the church to be. It was a pillar and a ground. It's supposed to have a complete system of truth. So when they understood the sanctuary, now it all came together. Because once they understood the sanctuary, they had a view to the complete system. Now they understood the complete system now. 
So here it says, it opened a view, a complete system of truth, connected and harmonious, showing that God's hand had directed the great Advent movement and revealing present duty as it brought to light the position and work of his people. Great Controversy 423. Now here's where it got deep. I thought about it. The Seventh-day Adventist church was birthed out of this prophesy again, prophecy. In other words, when you read Revelation 10, 11, understanding nobody else could fulfill it, that means that God literally prophesied in the book of Revelation the movement of Seventh-day Adventists. That's huge. That's why there was a term that the old pioneers used to use. They used to say, we are not simply a church. We are a movement of prophetic design. That's the reason, that was the language of God's people. We're a movement of prophetic design. Because nobody else could prophesy again. God knew this movement is the one that's been called. Now, understanding that, I thought about it. And you help me. Did the early apostles have a complete system of truth? What do you say? Did the early apostles have a complete system of truth? How many by the raise of hand says, yes? Let me see. Okay, just a few. How many by the raise of hand says, no? How many by the raise of hand says, I have no idea? <laughs> all right, now, that's all right, because we get the answer. Did they have the complete system of truth? Now, I'm going to let you know, I believe they did. In other words, what is a more biblical term for seven-day Adventists? What is a biblical term for Seventh-day Adventists? Say it again, Sister Tiffany. Very good. Sister Tiffany got the answer. The answer is remnant. Is that right? And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Which, keep the commandments of God, have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a remnant, what does it mean to be a remnant? It means remaining. So that means that there was something before. Is that right? So the remnant is simply a reflection of that which existed before. Does the remnant have a complete system of truth? Yes. So then the question is, should not the movement before had a complete system of truth? Yes, good deduction, but let's prove it. Think about it this way. Number one, Christ is the complete system of truth. You understand that? Oh, I love that. Because sometimes people say the sanctuary is. No, brothers and sisters, that means you didn't read it right. See, look back at the quote. Look back at the quote again. The subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the mystery of the disappointment of 1844. It opened to view a complete system of truth. What was it that opened to view a complete system of truth? The sanctuary. But was the sanctuary the complete system of truth? No, it opened to view a complete system of truth. You understand that? So then the question is, well, what is the complete system of truth? And the answer is, Christ is the complete system of truth. So in the sanctuary, the reason why the sanctuary message is so essential is because we can give the clearest, best, most accurate, beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. That's what we were supposed to do. Are you following? Sometimes I can help you understand more about the papacy, the beast, and make more clear and prominent the papacy and its movements where I did not make clear Christ. 
Are you following, saints? We have to point out the papacy and its movements and all these other things. But woe be unto us if people can see the movements of the papacy more clearly than the movements of Jesus. God have mercy on us. When people can see the movements of beast powers beneath and not the lamb and the lion above. That's a problem, brothers and sisters. And it's a bigger plague than you think. Christ is the complete system of truth. 1888 materials, page 1273, paragraph 2. It says, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All true believers center in Christ. Their character is irradiated by Christ. All meet in Christ and circulate about Christ. I like that. That's what God intended for Seventh-day Adventists. To reflect. What's your conversation like? What do you talk about? What is it that's always on your mind? What is it that you love to behold? What is it that's on your mind when before you go to bed? What is it that's on your mind when you rise? What is it that's on your mind when you get around your colleagues, your spiritual friends, and you like to talk? Do you talk more about the errors in the church? Do you talk more about the movements of the papacy and the worldly powers? Or do you find that Jesus is central? I'm not saying that Jesus being central negates talking about these things. What it does is it balances talking about these things. I like balance, brothers and sisters. I've seen a lot of perplexed Seventh-day Adventists. I've seen a lot of faithless Seventh-day Adventists. I've seen a lot of fanatical Seventh-day Adventists. But it's very hard to find balanced Seventh-day Adventists. Christ is the complete system of truth. Now watch this. Why do I ask that? Because remember, I asked the question. I said, did the apostles, did they have a complete system of truth? I believe they did. Now let's notice. Number one, they preached Christ according to 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 2. The Bible says, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. But it goes deeper than that. Also, They preached the sanctuary. Hebrews 8 in verse 2. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. Also, they preached through the Holy Spirit. Acts 2 in verse 4 says, And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Then it says, They preached the word. Acts 4 in verse 31. It says, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spoke the word of God with boldness. In addition to that, they also followed and kept and preached God's law. Acts 18 and verse 4. The Bible says, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. Why would they do that if they were not keeping God's holy law? And they also recognized Jesus as their high priest. Hebrews 4 and verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passing to the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. We're the remnant. They had a complete system for their time. We have a complete system for our time. And this is the present truth that God wants us to give to the world. And Satan is determined to make sure they do not follow that. Satan says we got to keep them from that. And the question is, what's his plan? So notice, Satan's method of attack again. Remember, faithful souls, 
He says, unfaithful souls. Chosen nation? He says, all right, rebellious nations. Then God says, Christian church? Satan says, okay, apostate church. Now, God says, remnant church? Satan says, I'll battle them with Babylon. And so it is, we have the Seventh-day Adventist church and the fallen churches, and here we are today. You see, when God raised us up, brothers and sisters, when he raised up the Seventh-day Adventist church, he gave us the blessed herald of those three angels. When he gave us those three angels' messages, he had to liken it to a tool. And when God had to liken in his mind, what tool can I compare to the effect that these messages were supposed to give? God says, I can't think of anything better than this right here. A cleaver. When God had to think, what's a tool that can represent what I've invested to my people? God says, a cleaver. Because one thing we know that a cleaver does is it separates. It cuts, and it cuts clear and to the point, even through bone and marrow. And so it is that we are told, brothers and sisters, God has called his church in this day, as he called ancient Israel, to stand as a light in the earth. It says, by the mighty cleaver of truth. What is this mighty cleaver of truth? The messages of the first, second, and third angels. He has separated them from the churches and from the world to bring them into a sacred nearness to himself. Imagine God wants to draw close to us. A sacred nearness to himself. He has made them the depositaries of his law and has committed to them. The great truths of prophecy for this time. Like the holy oracles committed to ancient Israel, these are a sacred what? I told you God entrusted us. These are a sacred trust to be communicated to the Seventh-day Adventist church. Is that what the quote says? To the world. Volume 5 of the Testimony to the Church, 455, paragraph 2. Brothers and sisters, we have to understand. You have to plead with God. As I pleaded years ago, I'm telling you right now, God, God has definitely started this work with me a long time ago. He's not through with me. But I woke up a long time ago. I can't learn how to talk just to SDAs. Because that's not why he committed the three angels' messages to us. John the Revelator did not say, and I saw another angel fly in the midst of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Saying to them that dwell in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Every nation, kindred, tongue, and people in the Seventh-day Adventist church. That is not what the verses say. And you know that. But it's amazing how that's how we interpreted it. Because we spend so much time around each other while we literally watch people dying. And we shake our heads when we hear about the banker that we just don't see anymore. The grocery clerk that we just don't see anymore. The people in different areas. And we say, where, 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 where's she at? Where's he at? Oh, they died. Oh, that's terrible. And we just kind of move on. As if God will not hold us accountable. You and I must learn this message in a way that we know how to talk both languages. That you can sit with the most hardcore seven-day Adventists and you can say, oh yeah, that's right, spirit of prophecy, da-da-da. And you can go ahead and dialogue with them. But when you get with those non-Adventists and they're saying, spirit of what? Volume what? I don't understand volumes and spirits. and this. I don't understand any of that. We say, but I do understand the Bible. Can you show me this from the Bible? We can say, absolutely. Turn your Bible. And we can walk them through. The question is, can you do that, brothers? And if you can't, that's your first work. I am telling you the truth. When I do trainings with missionaries, one of the first things I help them understand is I said, do you know the grand 
grand majority of Seventh-day Adventists, do you know we're in violation? Do you know if Ellen White were alive, she would literally rebuke us? No, watch this. Listen to what I'm saying. Because I say it not to hurt. I say it to educate. I am not here for condemnation. I'm here for education. There are many of us that practice certain reforms that if somebody said, close all other books, pick up your Bible, show me why you do this education, Sabbath, dress, and all these other recreation and every other type of reform. Show it to me. There are some of us, perhaps many of us, sadly, probably most of us, that we have no idea where to go in Scripture. We know how to pick up the books and go there, but we don't know how to do it in Scripture. And what we don't understand is that we are in violation. Write this down. Great Controversy 595. I want you to listen to this. Great Controversy 595. In Great Controversy, page 595, here's what it says. It says, and this is just the first sentence. You would do well to read the whole chapter. First sentence. It says, But God will have a people upon the earth to maintain the Bible and the Bible only as the standard of all doctrines and the basis of all reforms. Did you just hear that? It's worthy of repetition. But God will have a people upon the earth to maintain the Bible and the Bible only as the standard of all doctrines and the basis. What's another word for basis? Foundation. And the foundation of all reforms. When somebody says, why do you dress the way you dress? Pick up your Bible, brothers and sisters. Why do you eat the way you eat? Bible. This is not to negate the writings of the prophet. What we're doing is we're rightly utilizing the writings of the prophet. I believe Ellen White's writings faithfully studied makes you more profound and excellent Bible teachers and students. I believe that with all of my heart. Because every time I read anything profound in Ellen White's writings, the first prayer that I ask the Lord is, Father, where's that in the Bible? Because it's there. That's where she got it from. And I'm telling you, God will show you wondrous things out of his word. But it only belongs to those who seek. Seek and then you'll find. But if we're not going to seek and we're just going to be comfortable, just, yep, stay right here. And then we just go ahead and do that. We can't help but to wonder maybe that's why we're still in the condition we're in. You understand, saints? Closing. So God says, first, second, third angel, got to understand it. Got to walk in this demonstration. Got to walk in this power. The more that we receive this is the greater demonstration we will give. And so it is that Satan says, well, I'm going to attack it. And the way he's going to attack it is through that thing called loud to see. Satan is determined to make sure we don't get this picture. He's going to assist as much as possible. He's going to help us as much as possible to see that we are increased, rich, in need of nothing. And one of the ways that he does it and this one I will close giving you a quotation. And as we go throughout this weekend, you know, we'll substantiate many, many things from the Bible. I'm not worried about that. But watch this. Ellen White had an inside look at the conversation of Satan. And I want you to see what she heard him say. Satan says, I will have upon the ground as my agents men holding false doctrines. 
mingled with just enough truth to deceive souls. I will, Satan says. I'm going to set them up. There are some men that stand at pulpits that are very dangerous people. You hear me? There are some people. I said some. I didn't say all. Because I'd be lying. There are many of God's men that stand behind pulpits. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But there are many that Satan has sent. And they will give us just enough truth to keep us lost. He goes on to say, I will also have unbelieving ones present who will express doubts in regard to the Lord's messages of warning to his church. You give messages of warning, you make statements, and they say, oh, I don't think that's going to happen. Oh, no, that's not really going to happen. Do you really believe that? Come on, we got plenty of time. There are going to be people that's going to express all sorts of doubts to the clear statements of God's messages. And just to think, then Satan says, should the people read and believe these admonitions, we could have little hope of overcoming them. He literally told on himself. Satan doesn't even realize that he told on himself. If the people take heed to the warnings that God has given through his admonitions, through the pen of inspiration, if the people should take heed, Satan says we would have little opportunity to overcome them. He just showed you and I a key to success. But going on, but if we can divert their attention from these warnings, they will remain ignorant of our power and cunning, and we shall secure them in our ranks at last. God will not permit his words to be slighted with impunity if we can keep souls deceived for a time. Not forever. He just says just for a time. If we can keep them deceived for a time, God's mercy will be withdrawn, and he will give them up to our full control. I wonder how he's going to pull this off. Closing quote. We must cause distraction and division. I wonder if we have any of that today. Do we have distractions? Do we have people bringing up a bunch of non-essential stuff and trying to bring it before the people of God as present truth? Distractions. And what is it really causing? Divisions. This is 2520. This is feast days. This is anti-Trinitarian and many of these other organizations. This is what they're doing. They are busy being distracted and causing distraction and division. We must destroy their anxiety for their own souls. That's one thing that happens when you spend so much time critiquing others. When we spend a lot of time critiquing and breaking down every wrong thing and every wrong word that everybody else is doing, we have very little time. To have anxiety for our own poor soul condition. It says, we must destroy their anxiety for their own souls and lead them to criticize, to judge, and to accuse, and condemn one another, and to cherish selfishness and enmity. For these sins, God banished us from his presence. And all who follow our example will meet a similar fate. You have been raised up to prophesy again. And the question is, have you been distracted? The question is, have you fallen for the trap? Satan is terrified of the pillar and ground of truth. He's terrified of the called out ones. Because once he loses the grip of someone, and they are clung into the arms of Jesus, Satan is terrified. Because he knows that these people are going to spend much time on their knees. They're going to access power that is absolutely supernatural. 
They're going to be able to have an understanding of which they're going to abide so much in Christ that they are going to become even wiser than Satan himself. He's terrified. And so he says, give them promotions. Give them more workloads. Not every promotion comes from God. Sometimes a promotion in a business. Sometimes success, as we call it. Sometimes it was sent straight from the devil, brothers and sisters. Anything it takes to keep them distracted. Satan plays for keeps. Whatever it takes. And the question is, are you distracted? Are you divisive? What do you talk about when you're with your people at church? Do you know on Sabbath it's very rare to find people that just talk of Jesus and his love? It's a rare thing. We know how to come together. Did you hear? Hey, I saw this YouTube. Boy, you should have heard. And we just know how to talk about, quite honestly, everything else that really doesn't matter. And Jesus said, this is the one day that I just wanted you to just behold my love, to commune with me, that you actually weep when Sabbath is over. And you rejoice when it begins. Some of us know nothing of this experience, brothers and sisters. Yet we say we are people getting ready to finish the work and meet our God. Oh, my brothers and sisters, please. God wants us to understand. Listen, we can't keep being distracted. We got to get to that place that we get back to the basics and really understand what we are, who we are, what we believe, what's our message, what's our work. And then to go forward and do it faithfully, not by might, nor by power, but by God's spirit, saith the Lord. So I believe Jesus is making a call tonight. He's making a call, brothers and sisters. There's a freedom, a higher freedom than you already have. That Christ literally wants to give to you. It is as it were, he's standing right here and he just simply says, come forward. And whoever comes forward, take it out of my hands. Take it. And all we got to do is just take it by faith. And accept the blessed gift that he wants to give. Because truly where the spirit of the Lord is, there really is freedom. And so, if you believe, I've neglected my message. I've neglected this message. Maybe you say, I've been distracted. I fell for his plan. But by the grace of God, I will remain focused. By the grace of God, I'll be about my father's business. By the grace of God, I'm going to be more careful. And I'm going to renew my covenant with Jesus tonight. I'm going to do it in a way that by his grace, he will be pleased. If you know you've been in that place and you want to go on that higher ground, please stand to your feet with me. We need to pray together. And as we pray together, I just want you to know God loves you, brothers and sisters. He, he, he is reminding us of what has been given because you're going to see it. Tomorrow when we come back together, you're going to see it, brothers and sisters. There's a great work to do and little time in which to get it done. And so we, whatever we must do, we must do it without delay. Now, I'm going to renew my covenant with God on my knees. And if you're able to, I'd like to invite you to kneel with me. And if you can't kneel, then just go ahead and bow your heads where you are. And let's all renew our covenant with the Lord together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your wonderful words of life. Thank you, dear God, for tonight just preparing the ground 
that our hearts can be broken, that we can truly receive the seed of the gospel. Lord, I praise you and thank you for making your words plain to our hearts tonight. Thank you for reminding us the great heritage that we have as a movement. We really are a movement of prophetic design. And Father, I just pray, bless my brothers and my sisters according to their heart needs. And may you truly draw them so divinely close to your arms that they will sense the clinging hug of Jesus and they will never, ever let go. Lord, I pray that you will truly help us to realize that time is almost finished, but we must reflect the lovely image of Jesus as we should. And I pray that you will teach us tomorrow how to do this step by step, point by point, as we continue to dig deeper and deeper upon your words, which you call light and truth. Forgive us for minimizing this wonderful word called church. Help us, dear God, to really understand we have been called out of darkness and into your marvelous light. By your grace, help us to walk in the light as Christ is in the light. Is our prayer that we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This message is produced by PTH Ministries. Our mission is to spread the three angels' messages through preaching and teaching the Seventh-day Adventist message and to integrate healing through medical missionary work in declaring the gospel. For more information on our ministry and the resources we provide, please log on to our website at www.pthministries.com. That's www.pthministries.com. Or you can call us at 770-274-9537. That's 770-274-9537. May we do our part to meet the needs of humanity through the everlasting gospel and hasten Christ's return. Maranatha.